Today it's a mixed bag on Town Hall, Ohio. We'll hear from a man who's won the food industry equivalent of the Nobel Prize. And we'll hear from another gentleman who's won an MVP award in a Super Bowl. Dr. Rob Fraley of Monsanto talks to us about feeding an exploding world population, while Hall of Fame running back Larry Zonka talks about football and farming. Plus, Ohio's Attorney General covers some growing drug abuse problems in the Buckeye State. We're all over the place this week on Town Hall, Ohio. This is Town Hall, Ohio, home to interesting people, engaging issues, and enlightening stories. Town Hall, Ohio is a production of the Ohio Farm Bureau Federation, working to forge a partnership between farmers and consumers, and is supported by Nationwide. Nationwide is on your side. Now, here's Town Hall, Ohio host, Joe Corneli. Well, we're going to do things a little differently this week, not have a full show digging into a single subject, but more of a smorgasbord of, I think, interesting people whose common connection is they have all recently been speakers at various events hosted by the Ohio Farm Bureau. For example, later we're going to hear from pro football superstar Larry Zonka. He entertained and motivated Farm Bureau members a few months back at our annual meeting. On a more serious note, Ohio Attorney General Mike DeWine was with Farm Bureau members just a couple weeks ago at our Ag Day at the Capitol event. DeWine talked about two Farm Bureau priorities, reining in an overly aggressive federal regulation and talking about the growing problems of drug abuse here in Ohio, especially in our rural areas. But first, we're going to spend some time with Dr. Rob Fraley of Monsanto, He addressed more than 700 who attended this year's Young Agricultural Professionals Conference. So who is Rob Fraley? Well, just about everybody's heard of the Nobel Prize. It's presented annually in recognition of significant contributions in such areas as economics or literature or advocacy for world peace. Well, the equivalent to the Nobel within the agricultural sector is called the World Food Prize, And Rob Fraley was presented with that honor just a couple of years ago. He was recognized for the research that he and his co-workers at Monsanto pioneered in plant biotechnology and then applying it to advanced breeding and crop improvement. In 1983, Fraley and Monsanto scientists were the first to genetically modify plants. Then in 96, Fraley helped lead the successful commercial launch of the first genetically modified crops. By 2012, the work that Fraley put forth ended up with seeds being grown on more than 440 million acres worldwide by more than 17 million farmers. And 90% of those farmers are of the small, resource-poor farmers in developing nations. In other words, Rob Fraley has played a big role in feeding the world. And as I opened my visit with him, I asked him about that job going forward. Well, we uh, we face a a huge challenge. I mean, uh, population today is 7.3 billion people. By 2050, um, it'll be almost 10 billion. And you know, like I always I always pause there and, and make that comment that you know, 2050 seems a long way off. And you know, I had a group that I was talking today whose average age was probably 29 or 30, and uh, the reality of it is, you know. 
That's 34 years away. By the time, you know, those kids were my age, uh, it's their world. You know, 34 years goes by quickly. So, you know, population growth is one part of it. The other part of it that a lot of people, you know, just don't even think about is world wealth. You know, I know we're in a kind of a tight time, you know, the last year or so, but in general, world wealth across Asia and Africa is increasing dramatically. A lot of people don't realize that, you know, for the last decade, Five of the fastest-growing economies in the world are in Africa. And, you know, by 2050, you know, probably two or three of the ten biggest cities in the world will be in Africa. And, you know, those individuals who, you know, have that wealth, who join the middle class, are going to want to eat, you know, better. They're going to have more fresh fruits and vegetables. They're going to have more protein in their diets. So you add up the demand for just more people and then uh, more people eating better, uh, basically, uh, we have to double the food supply. And, you know, that, a big part of that's going to be increasing production sustainably. You know, we can do a lot on, you know, reducing food waste, but we need to produce more. And that's the key. And I know it's even going to get more complicated because, you know, there's going to be less water used in farming because it's going to be used by the by cities. Um we know that uh, climate change, you know, the the effects of uh, warming temperatures is going to change, you know, the the agricultural production regions. It's going to change the kind of pests that farmers face. But against even all that backdrop, you know, we have such spectacular advances, you know, that we, you know, scientifically that are, you know, transforming farming and uh, and food production around the world. You know, the advances in biology where we now understand, you know, genes in the crops and, and can use that to, to breed better crops, the data science capabilities that are, you know, transforming, uh, you know, not only farming in this country, you know, where, you know, if, if you think about, you know, the the average tractor or the average combine has, you know, more computer power than the first spaceships that went to the moon. But in rural areas across Asia and Africa, the cell phone now becomes the delivery agent for agronomic advice, for weather information, for market information, for credit. So these two tools, uh, you know, are going to change, you know, farming around the world. And we need that because in order to meet that food demand for 2050, we're going to need to farm, you know, better with higher yields and more sustainably. You make the point that to address these food challenges that one of the biggest uh, accomplishments in, in human knowledge of late has been the ability to understand and manipulate the gene. People are uncomfortable with genetic manipulation. Before we talk about that in the food and farming space, you made some good points in your talk to our young ag professionals about the fact that GMOs are utilized not just in feeding us. Yeah, you know, I, I wrote an article that uh, got a lot of attention called We Live in a GMO World. And, I, and, you know, I start by making the point that, you know, almost half of the new drugs that are developed in the pharmaceutical industry are GMOs. In fact, the first GMO product ever developed was, was Umulin, GMO insulin, which, you know, now lets us literally make human insulin in the laboratory, and that gave diabetics uh, a far better product than the, uh, than the animal insulins that were, you know, extracted from, uh, you know, from sheep or pigs. And so it's exploded across medicine, and, uh, and it's really improved our health care. And then as you look at other areas, uh, you know, in, in the food system, uh, you know, 
we use GMOs and enzymes uh, to produce our cheese. We use it to produce our vitamins and many of our, the nutrients that are added to foods. So the, the GMO technology has been a, an underpinning of enhancing, you know, food nutrition in this country. And then, you know, um, you know there's a lot of personal health care products and, and, uh, that are, you know, based on GMO technology. I talked today that, you know, the, uh, the enzymes that we use to wash our clothes, you know, those proteases or lipases that lift out the dirt and, frankly, let us, uh, you know, uh, do laundry at cold temperatures are, are products of GMOs. So we live in a GMO world, and uh, in crops, it's been very true. Here in this country, uh, you know, GMOs were first introduced in 1996, so we're celebrating the 20th anniversary uh, you know, a, a large percentage of our corn and soybean and cotton and canola and alfalfa and sugar beet uh, are based on GMOs. But in addition to that, there's now 30-plus countries around the world that are uh, using the GMO technology. You know, on the one hand, it's been the fastest adopted technology in the history of agriculture. On the other hand, we find that we still have challenges in communicating those benefits and uh, and uh, understanding. And, and that's something for the last three or four years that, you know, I've really focused on because I, I think it was a miss on our part. You know, we, uh, you know, we invented some incredibly important technologies. We, we put our focus on uh, communicating those technologies to the users, the farmers, but we really miss the, uh, the opportunity to communicate to the consumer. One of those messages that I, that I have heard farmers and, and, and their partners in agriculture, such as Monsanto, talk about is, well, we've been modifying plants and animals, really, since the beginning of time. But people still come back to the, well, that's okay. You know, I can understand a, a strawberry getting to b- create a better strawberry. But what happens when you move the gene from plant A to plant B? That worries me more. Apparently, nature has already done that too. Yeah, and it's, a, I think, a really important part of the story because, you know, it, it, it's, you know, it's a hard conversation to have with folks that, you know, we... And everything around us, you know, continues to change and evolve. Um, And as you made the point, I mean, um, you know, we, man has evolved his food system from the beginning of time. I, you know, I I talked today that, you know, if you would actually look at the crops and where they originated, North America, basically the only crops that were here natively were things like sunflower and strawberries. Everything we grow in the U.S. came from somewhere else. You know, the soybeans came from China. Corn came from Mexico, tomatoes came from Peru, you know, grapes and lettuce and all our vegetables came from Europe or, uh, or uh, the Middle East. So they have all been genetically modified to grow in the U.S., and, and they've changed enormously. I mean, if you go back and look at what an ancestral banana looked like or a, you know, tiny little ear of teosinte that, you know, the size of your little finger, uh, it's a good thing we've been able to do that because it's given us better foods, healthier foods, more nutritious foods. But still with that, you know, concept of of constant improvement and evolution of the crops, you know, I I think 20 years ago when we were first, you know, created the, uh, the, uh, the GMO crops, there was still a lingering concern that somehow this was unnatural you know, that we were putting a a gene into a a corn plant or a soybean plant that hadn't been there and that that was something that that seemed uh, out of the ordinary. And, you know, I, I mentioned today that, you know, that view is changing very quickly because scientific studies, as we've sequenced the genes in many, many different species from people to trees to plants to 
uh, fungal organisms and bacteria, what, what's now apparent across the scientific community is that genes are moving between species constantly. It's called horizontal gene transfer, and there, you know, there's some just startling examples. The ones I talked about today, you know, I, you know, the yew tree. So everybody knows a yew tree, you know, with the little red berry, and you know, it became really famous a few years ago because yew trees were the source of Taxol, which is uh, an important anti-cancer agent for uh, for breast cancer. Uh, in sequencing the genome of the yew tree, scientists realized that that capacity for the yew tree to make taxol was actually given to the yew tree by a fungal organism. So the, the tree obtained genes from the fungi. So that's a, a very vivid example of, of gene transfer from one species to another. The one that was just published last year, which uh, has really been uh, important in the discussion in the scientific community, is... Uh, Scientists sequence sweet potato. You know, I love sweet potatoes. Uh, we eat them all the time. All sweet potatoes, turns out, contain bacterial genes. And, and what makes this one so important is the bacterial genes in the sweet potato come from the same bacterium, which we call agrobacterium, which we use to introduce genes into soybean and, uh, and corn plants. So, uh, you know, just a, an incredible example. And then the, just a few months ago, um, they, they uh, published a compendium of all of the human genome sequencing efforts where they sequenced the genes in people. And what the, the study, you know, demonstrated was, you know, you and me, us, we contain, you know, 100 or 200 genes from other species, some from bacteria, some from algae. So the whole point of this is something that seemed, you know, maybe 20 years ago is, you know, you know, of genes moving from one species to another now turns out to be very common. And I always make the point that it turns out that nature's been a pretty good genetic engineer. We'll hear more from World Food Prize laureate Rob Fraley when we continue on Town Hall Ohio. Welcome back to Town Hall, Ohio, and our visit with World Food Prize Laureate Rob Fraley. Dr. Fraley is Executive Vice President and Chief Technology Officer for Monsanto. He made his mark in agriculture by being one of the lead developers of biotechnology as a tool with which to feed the world. In the last few years, he's placed an emphasis on talking about that technology to the public, hoping to build some understanding for a technology that, frankly, many consumers find worrisome. I asked him about talking with the public about biotechnology in general and genetically modified organisms or GMOs specifically. Food security is key. And, you know, I, I start every talk just making sure people realize the challenge we have in doubling the, uh, the food supply. So food security is always top of mind. But I find that with a number of consumers, uh, you know, people are very passionate around the environment. And I think it's a really important uh, addition to the conversation to talk about the incredible role that I think agriculture can play in improving the environment. And, you know, many of the technologies that we've developed play directly into that. I mean, the value of having a BT gene in a corn plant to control an insect is it reduces insecticide use. And that's a good thing. And it also produces a better crop with less waste, less food waste. 
And so, you know, there's a lot of interest in how do we reduce the wastage of food. Food waste can occur in the field. It can occur in transportation. It can occur in storage. It can occur in the refrigerator and at the restaurant. And we need to stop food waste across the chain. And, and we, I think, can, can help at the field level. You know, the same thing's true of, um, of the herbicide-tolerant crops. Um, you know, I know that's probably been controversial more than anything else because you're using a chemical like Roundup to control weeds. But, you know, it's really important for the consumer to understand that in the absence of, of those kind of approaches, you know, farmers would be increasing the tillage of their fields. Uh, the tillage uses a lot of energy. Uh, when you till that soil, you release a lot of moisture. You change the uh, the uh, the the, uh, the soil health, uh, and most importantly, you create an opportunity for erosion by not tilling by using the weed control systems like Roundup, farmers can uh, can increase soil health and reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And I think there's a whole set of practices with no-till, with cover crops, that um, that can be important as one of the solution sets for uh, for greenhouse gas recovery. You know, everybody understands the concept uh, of planting a tree to help fix carbon. Uh, because the tree is, uh, you know, absorbs CO2 from the air and fixes carbon in wood and roots. But the reality of it is high-production corn and soybean here in Ohio, those corn and soybean plants are taking CO2 out of the air. And so I think, you know, high yield, high productivity, you know, crop production is going to become an excellent, you know, way of, uh, of helping to, uh, to manage the reduction of greenhouse gases. You're the chief technology officer for an organization that, uh, my goodness, a rock star just did an album vilifying your company. Uh, the, the, the name Monsanto gets kicked around quite a bit. Uh, you talked about the need to address that, and you talked about the need that one of the best ways to do that is to open the doors and let people look in. I'm very public with the uh, admission that uh, Monsanto and, frankly, our, our whole industry did a really lousy job of communicating to the public. And, you know, back in the 90s when we got, you know, USDA, EPA, FDA approval, approval from Europe and China and all the 30 countries around the world to, you know, sell the, the biotech crops, uh, you know, we put our energy at that point in time to, uh, you know, to talking to farmers, farmer customers about the products and uh, and their benefits. And what we missed was the, uh, the the need and the opportunity to communicate directly to the consumer. And, and to be fair, uh, during that time, you know, the, the world of communication changed. Uh, you know, social media became uh, key. Folks who, you know, I described folks who don't like GMOs, don't like, agriculture, don't like Monsanto, you know, created a, a reservoir of, of misinformation that myths that, you know, we need to address. And we're doing that. And, you know, we realized about four years ago that, you know, we had made a mistake. Uh, we need to communicate directly to the public. Uh, and, you know, we have changed course completely. Uh, uh, we've created websites, uh, uh, you know, that are available for consumers to ask questions. 
Uh, I've become personally very involved in social media. You know, if any of your listeners want to follow me on Twitter, my uh, Twitter feed is at Rob Fraley, R-O-B-B-F-R-A-L-E-Y. But I also write a lot for uh, for LinkedIn and Huffington Post and, uh, and provide, you know, some of the background information on the technology and, uh, and what it does and, and also address some of the, the myths that unfortunately, uh, you know, have, uh, have developed. Uh, but in addition to that, you know, we are, are outreaching now to the folks that, that we need to talk to, you know, the moms, the, the millennials, the food-minded folks, the chefs, the restaurants, you know, and, and we're doing it in a way that I think it's important in the way that people want to get the information. And so, you know, in, in, in a broad answer to your question, I have kind of taken all that, that, you know, what you could view as criticism of the company and realize that it really is the opportunity for us to communicate. You know, there are extreme voices on, on either side of this discussion, but 80 or 90 percent of the public just want straight information about their food and how it's produced. And uh, I think you know, I am already seeing how the open dialogue that we've generated is uh, is really shifting the uh, the conversation. World Food Prize laureate Dr. Rob Fraley, he's executive vice president, chief technology officer for Monsanto. More of Town Hall, Ohio, right after this. Back in 2014, which is the year most recent stats are available for, there were almost 2,500 deaths in Ohio caused by drug overdoses. And according to federal data, for every person who actually dies from a drug overdose, there's something like another 825 people who are using those same illegal drugs and may eventually end up in an ER, a treatment program, or also dead. Ohio Attorney General Mike DeWine recently spoke to the Ohio Farm Bureau's county leaders. They were all in Columbus for their annual Ag Day at the Capitol event, and he shared some sobering information. You know, this is an unusual uh, drug epidemic. Usually uh, they're centered in our cities. Uh, This epidemic, unfortunately, is centered more in our rural areas. So there's not one uh, rural county in the state of Ohio or any county that does not have a heroin problem. I'm sure there's a multitude of reasons behind this, but as you look at it from a a high-level perspective, what are some of the reasons we're seeing such a problem in rural Ohio? You know, it's really hard to say, but I think a couple things have come together. One is we've had a change in culture. Uh, When I was a county prosecuting attorney in the late 1970s, heroin was something that was confined to the cities, and even people who did drugs, other drugs, would not do heroin. Heroin was something that just a relatively few people would do. Uh, there was a, a, People were scared of it. Uh, today, that is gone for whatever reason, that psychological barrier. Uh, we have to do, start doing a better job with education and prevention. So I think that's one, one thing, just a cultural change. Uh, second, uh, the Mexican drug cartels have a, really a perfect business model. They are now uh, growing the poppies in Mexico. Uh, they process it in Mexico. They bring it across our southern border. Uh, they bring it into Ohio and other states. And they have a great marketing program. 
they will deliver it to you. Uh, they will meet you at the Walmart parking lot or some at, at Wendy's or some other place. Um, you can buy it for as cheap as 10 or $15. Sometimes they'll even give it to you to get you hooked. Once someone is hooked, uh, their life totally changes. Uh, you know, they became very dependent on it. They have to have it every single day. And after a while, uh, they're no longer chasing a high. What they're really trying to do is stay normal for the day. Um, if you look at how much is consumed by an early-stage heroin addict versus a late-stage heroin addict, it can be as high as 100 to 1. So you start at $15 a day, but... Later on, when you're a full-blown heroin addict, uh, that may cost you $1,500 a day. Now, who in the world has $1,500 a day? Uh, the answer is very, very few people. And so how do they get it? Well, they, they break into your house. Uh, they, they go into the villages and break in. They go to a farmhouse and break in. They steal from their family. Um, you know, 90% of the crime that we have in Ohio is caused one way or the other by, by drugs. Someone either trying to, trying to be high on drugs who commits a crime or someone who is stealing money so that they can get the drugs for that day. Attorney General DeWine also talked to the Farm Bureau leaders on another topic, a lawsuit that his office has filed against the United States Environmental Protection Agency and the Army Corps of Engineers. The suit is a popular move by farmers because they're worried about those agencies overreaching their regulatory authority under the Clean Water Act. This is an old law uh, that has now been interpreted by the Obama administration to give them unbelievable power. Um, you know, if, if you have, for example, on your farm uh, a, a creek bed that uh, only runs a couple times a year, it's dry creek bed, um, you know, they're going to claim they have the right to control what you do with that. In fact, they're going to claim that they have the right within, you know, a few hundred feet of that. So uh, the Army Corps of Engineers has come up with these regulations, which far exceed what we've ever seen before. It's a real invasion, would be an invasion in, in property rights and, and people's rights to, uh, you know, live the way they want to live. Uh, we filed a lawsuit uh, against the administration. Uh, we now have an injunction, which has been issued by the Sixth Circuit, prohibiting them from enforcing that uh, until the case is actually heard on the merits. The Ohio Farm Bureau are very appreciative of, of your work uh, to prevent the U.S. EPA Army Corps of enacting the WOTUS rules. It seems to be that that's just one example of a, a trend that we're seeing where the Congress will establish policies and yet the administration uses its rulemaking authority to circumvent that intent. If you see it that way, how do you fix that? Well, let me just be very blunt. Uh, we've never seen anything like this Obama administration. Uh, Bill Clinton didn't interpret the Clean Water Act that way. Um, nobody else has either. Uh, so what they are doing is they are uh, interpreting the law, as you say, something that's been passed by Congress, and going way, way, way beyond whatever Congress intended. The way you stop that is to do what we have done, and that is to join with other states and file lawsuits challenging their, their ability uh, to do that. And, you know, our argument is they've gone well beyond the power. There's, you know, the Congress uh, is supposed to write the laws. Now we have a situation where the Obama administration thinks they can write the laws. We have been successful thus far. We have 
an injunction out of the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals, and they have ordered the administration not to enforce it pending uh, the actual trial of the case. Ohio Attorney General Mike DeWine. Town Hall, Ohio, will continue in a moment. Today's show, I told you we're going to be all over the board, and so far you've heard from one of the world's most renowned scientists. You've heard from the Attorney General of the state of Ohio, and now you're going to hear from an NFL Hall of Famer. I have to admit this is one of the more fun interviews I've had a chance to do in a long time. One of my childhood idols, NFL Hall of Famer Larry Zonka. If you're not a football fan, there's not time to give you all of Mr. Zonka's creds, but trust me, well-known in uh, football circles as one of the toughest men to ever play the game. He also was the keynote speaker earlier this winter during the leadership forum that was hosted by the Ohio Farm Bureau in conjunction with our annual meeting. Well, I uh, grew up on a small farm just outside of Stowe, Ohio, in uh, Summit County. Uh, Never really, we didn't own a large dairy farm or anything. We had four or five head of uh, cattle. And, uh, but I worked on huge dairy farms that, were, that, that flanked our little farm on both sides and got to know the old surge milkers and uh, got to know the discipline of being a farmer and how important it was to milk at the same time twice a day, how important it was to get the crops off the fields in a certain amount of time, get the hay in before the rain got on it, and all the standard stuff, and how tough it is to shovel corn that's still on the ear and all that. If you have the toughness to be a farmer, And the discipline to be a good farmer. If you have that, you have the basic qualities that that apply to athletics. You've made that that, that corollary there between this discipline, uh, what it takes to be a successful farmer and and a successful football player. If if I heard you right in your career, you saw those same characteristics in, in your teammates. I think as a farmer, you have to have more than just the characteristics. You have to personify what I was talking about. You have to have the integrity in order to discipline yourself to do the things that you have to do to even qualify for a chance to make it. So with that kind of uh, lifestyle, athletics should come pretty easily. In a Hall of Fame career, uh, one of the things you'll be most noted for is the undefeated season of 1972. As you look back with, uh, with some perspective on that, besides having great athletes, what were some of the things that lent themselves to allow you to go through an undefeated season? Depth of the people that we had that were intent on winning. You know, Coach Shula was a primary driving force in that scenario. But he was smart enough to align people that, that, that aligned themselves with his program, that accepted the discipline that he was dishing out and the way we had to perform and the way, what we had to do in order to make it a win each week. As you look back from the late 60s, 70s when you were playing to here we are in, in 2015, what, what do you see as the big differences in, in the game of football? Oh, my gosh, how, how much time do you have on the air? <laughs> I mean, tremendous differences. Uh, The most outstanding differences is, I think, in the rules. Uh, The rules have been changed to make the game, number one, safer, number two, more interesting. Uh, True scholars of the game that understand the intricacy of a power running game or or, uh, well-executed inside running football 
uh, can appreciate far more than that. But, you know, good or bad, that's the way it is. And those rules have been enhanced to make more of the passing game. So you're seeing much more scoring and you're seeing much more appreciation from the fans because they understand it. You mentioned that another change in the rules has to do with safety. You made your uh, mark on the game as being a very physical football player. Uh, Some would argue that today they're taking some of the physicality out of the game. Uh, Your assessment? I think they're right. They are. But I think that's based on safety, number one. And then uh, a little less than that, (laughs) number two, uh, it's a contact sport. When you have contact sports... Uh, when people run into each other, sometimes they suffer the consequence. And, you know, the next play, they're not quite as good as they were the play before. So you have to take that into account. Uh, If you're running back and going down the field, I wouldn't run out of bounds if I saw a defensive back coming up. I would turn up and hit him because on the next play, Paul Warfield might, uh, wide receiver, might have him one-on-one. And if I sting him enough, uh, he might not be up, up to snuff as far as taking on our wide receiver, a fellow like Paul Warfield. If uh, a young mother asks you today, should my son play football, or in some cases, should my daughter, uh, how, do you, how do you advise them? I don't. That's up to the child. I, I, I would advise them to not play until they raise Cain that they want to play. If they just want to play as a fad because their buddies are doing it, that's not, that's not the reason to play. And I got in a lot of fierce competition, a lot of fierce heat, drew a lot of fire with the media from saying that back in the 70s because I did not agree with peewee football. I did not agree with the the little fellas playing tackle football until they were old enough that their voice started to change because weights were so different. Kids are a lot different. There's so many things can happen, and people that were coaching it weren't rehearsed, didn't understand what it was all about. And I think that uh, when I was a kid growing up, we didn't play until we got to about junior high, and I think that's really where contact sports should start is about junior high when when – the kids that are participating start wanting to participate uh, in the thing because they like the, the contact. NFL Hall of Famer Larry Zonka. Today's eclectic lineup of guests, World Food Prize winner, the state's attorney general, and an NFL Hall of Famer, all have one thing in common. They were the speakers at the last three large Ohio Farm Bureau activities, our annual meeting, our Young Ag Professionals Conference, and Ag Day at the Capitol. Now, someone else in attendance at all three of those events, another very famous person, Steve Hirsch, who's a farmer down in Ross County and also is the president of the Ohio Farm Bureau Federation. It's great to see our members be engaged in something that they care about. The 700 young folks, that was awesome to have them there um, learning and, and, and building relationships with each other because that will continue to build over time, and that's great. Here at Ag Day at the Capitol, these are our best advocates for, for the priority issues that we care about in agriculture, and them telling their story to their legislators is very important. They also get to catch up with each other and re- reconnect with friends, they, friends they've seen, but the important part is that, you know, that, that they are engaged, that they want to come here, that they brave Mother Nature to get here, and that, they wanna, they, that they're passionate about the issues and Farm Bureau. You and I were at Young Ag Professional meetings three, four years ago, and if we had 100 folks, we were pretty happy. Over 700 this year. What do you credit that to? 
Um, I think it's the the credit goes to the to the committee, the Young Ag Professionals Committee. They've done a great job in in recruiting folks to come, and then building good programs at the meeting. So if you have good speakers and you have good programs and they learn a lot, you're going to go home and tell somebody, hey, you know, you ought to come to this next year. And then having them invite other people. If you don't ask somebody, they aren't going to come. So so, so telling them, hey, bring somebody with you next year. And we challenged them to, to get to 1,000, you know, 300, 500, and 1,000. And, and they're well on their way to getting there. At the Ag Professionals meeting, we had Dr. Fraley from Monsanto, uh, uh, a very obvious ag connection uh, at the Ag Day at the Capitol, uh, Attorney General Mike DeWine, and he spoke largely about the drug abuse problem in Ohio. Why is that a, a Farm Bureau worry, a Farm Bureau issue? Well, we're in every county and in every community, and we like and building community is important for Farm Bureau members. And so, you know, it's not just an urban issue. This drug epidemic, it is a it is an urban, suburban, and rural issue. And so, as as members in our community, we need to take it upon ourselves to start finding solutions to those problems that are impacting our communities. One of the big farmier issues, uh, something we always talk about is property taxes. And right now, a, a lot of Ohio farmers uh, for the last several years have seen rather significant increases in what they've had to pay in property tax. What message are Farm Bureau members taking to legislators on current agricultural use value? Um, the formula, you know, we don't want to scrap the formula. It is working. CAUV has been our best farmland preservation tool over the years. We just need to tweak, continue to make sure that the formula is accurate and, and does what we need it to do for agricultural land values. Uh, and so that's the message that we're, that we're sending is that, uh, you know, it's still working, but we need it to work better. One of the things that uh, makes Farm Bureau influential at the State House, probably the most important thing, is the fact that we represent farmers of Ohio. Something like 80% of the farmers are a part of our organization. Just within the last year, Ohio Farm Bureau has decided, you know what, we've got some natural allies out there that should be a part of our efforts. Talk a little bit about expanding who we want to work with in terms of the voting membership in Farm Bureau. Well, I think, you know, we, 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 we expanded our, our membership categories, but we expanded the, the who can be an active member, not only the young active, but also within our industry. So anybody that that is pre-production or post-production, so the seed, feed, fertilizer, equipment dealers, you know, why aren't they part of what we're doing? Agriculture impacts them as much as it does farmers, and what goes on in the economy in Ohio impacts them as much as it does farmers. And then those folks beyond, so the 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 elevator, the food processor, and beyond. So why aren't those folks part of what we're doing, too? You know, we need to, we need to have more folks involved in what we're doing to impact legislation or, or, or issues that are important to ag and the, and the bigger business of agriculture. So I have to ask, you are a fruit grower, uh, really weird winter weather in Ohio. Uh, what's, uh, what's, uh, what's it doing on two or for the farm? <laughs> Well, we're not sure yet what it's doing, and we still have, you know, a couple months. So we're uh, we're cautiously optimistic that everything's that everything's good. We had a couple of a uh, couple months of uh, abnormally warm weather weather in November and December, and so now I am glad that it's that it's cooled off and we're getting some chilling hours. Um, hopefully, we don't uh, some of these uh, 60 degree days that we've had here in, in winter haven't uh, affected anything to the detriment of a fruit crop. Farm Bureau President Steve Hirsch, we thank you for joining us on Town Hall Ohio.
Town Hall Ohio is a project of the Ohio Farm Bureau Federation and is brought to you with the support of Nationwide. Nationwide is on your side. Join us again next week for Town Hall Ohio.